everybody. Just a quick word before we start today's episode. This is going to be a part of a series we'll do periodically where we highlight women of color in roles where you don't see a lot of black and brown folks and definitely not a lot of women. We're starting today with Dr. Vanessa Starks. She's an anesthesiologist in the DC area. She'll talk a lot about um, the different responses she gets when she comes into the room and says she's the doctor. We did record this several months ago. So don't worry if you hear reference to 2020 and it was before we were quite as far along in the pandemic. She's also going to be hosting a virtual town hall on February the 5th where she'll be talking about COVID in our community. I'll be sure to put information about that in the show notes. Until then, let's listen to what she has to say. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues that we are dealing with on a daily basis. I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson. So glad to spend a little time with you today. And I have a special guest who's a great friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Vanessa Starks. I'm going to have her introduce herself. And we're just going to be talking today. I'll be doing a series of interviews where I'm talking to women who are in positions that you don't typically see a lot of women of color, uh, what that's been like, um, that sort of thing. So I'll let her introduce herself, tell you, uh, tell us a little bit about her. So hello, Vanessa. How are you today? Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Vanessa Starks. I'm currently um, faculty attending anesthesiologist at George Washington University Hospital in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. Um, I did my undergrad at University of South Florida, Go Bulls, which is where I met the illustrious Karen Davis Thompson. And then after that, I went on to medical school at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and then completed a residency training in anesthesiology and critical care medicine, which is what I practice now. Thank you for that. So before I get into some questions, let me just clear some things up. Yes, she met me in Tampa, Florida, but I did not go to USF. I do not want, no offense, I am a rat lime orange and green. I bleed it. So I just wanted to clear that up. I want, I want no trouble. I want no trouble. Anyway, you know, that whole Bulls Rattler rivalry thing we got going on. <laughs> so just wanted to get into asking a few questions. So what was it that, uh, when did you know you wanted to go into medicine? What was it about it that appealed to you? When did you know this is what you wanted to do? So science was always my favorite subject in elementary school, middle school, high school. And originally, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. I thought that the people that go out in the ocean and look at fish and swim with dolphins were just the coolest people on Earth. Um, but I was also an athlete. And when I was in high school, I got injured really, really bad running track. I tore my ACL. And I had to go get surgery, orthopedic surgery to repair my ACL. And my orthopedic surgeon was a black doctor from Howard University School of Medicine. And he actually became my inspiration. He was the one who saw that if I was interested in science as a young black woman, that medicine would actually be a really good field for me. He said, you already know the science. You already love it. You get it. And you also love the human body because you're an athlete. You love working out. You love knowing how the body works. Medicine would be a really good fit for you. And it was just like a light bulb went off. And I couldn't believe I had never thought of that before. And really, that was the deciding moment where everything from that point on was getting to medical school. And Dr. Stephen Weber was his name. He's still in practice today. 
and he was my inspiration for going into medicine just because he was able to kind of put the put the links together, put the things together. Um, and he set me on this career path. And now that I know what doctors do and what marine biologists do, I definitely know that I made the right decision. And why was it, what was it about marine biology that made you think before this experience that that's what you thought you wanted to do? It was the fact that I loved the biological sciences. I loved oceanography. I loved absolutely being in the water. And I actually did an internship um, in the Washington, D.C. area with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I did that internship for three years during the summers while I was in high school, learning about different types of fish, learning about different types of ocean environments and the types of things that they study. I actually studied swordfish migration patterns in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it was all very fascinating for me, but it was just that. It was interesting, but it wasn't actually a passion. Um, And so when I met Dr. Weber and he explained the link between science and the human body, that just really became a passion instead of interest for me. And did you find that even back then that were there a lot of other uh, black kids or brown kids doing these internships and getting into marine biology or even in some of your upper level science classes? Or did you find early on that you were in very small company? So I have a little bit of a a unique experience growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, which is majority black. Um, And also Washington, D.C. area has the highest per capita number of graduate degrees of anywhere else in the country. So I did grow up around a lot of smart black kids who wanted to do similar things. Um, Even on my track team in high school, there were three of us who wanted to be doctors. Someone else wanted to be a dentist. And I believe all of us ended up going into the medical field in some uh, in some capacity. Um, We also had a lot of diversity initiatives, even at that age. Um, Some women, uh, one woman in particular from my church, a missionary, missionary Natalie Huff. um, She was our connection at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And she literally looked out for the church kids. And got us internships in the government um, in those science areas, areas where minorities aren't as highly represented as they as they should be. So I have to say that early on in my life, I had people who knew what they were doing and who were in the right places to kind of plug me in where I needed to be. So nothing was because I was so determined or because I was so um so gung-ho, but I really had people who were looking out for me before I even knew that I needed to be looked out for, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely it does. So how old would you say you were? Because, you know, for most of us, um, you know, I was in, um, you know, not in gifted classes, but I took honors classes in school and literally it was the same three or four black kids in every class. Um, And not that it was because we were so much um, smarter, but we may have had parents who understood the system a little bit better. Um, So I grew up always knowing that it was, it it was almost like an anomaly to people to see several kids in an honors class. You know, I talked to a guest once who had to fight to get his child tested for gifted, even though both of his sons were gifted and tested fine. It was, it was a fight to, to have those types of things done. And so how old were you, would you say before you realized, you know, what what I had was kind of unique and this isn't happening in other places. 
I would have to say that I didn't realize how unique my situation was um, probably until I went to college. Um, and I went to a PWI, predominantly white institution, um, majority institution. And I saw that everybody did not grow up the same as I did. And I saw the attitudes that other people had towards people of color. And I realized that they had just not been exposed and that I was coming into an environment where people weren't used to seeing people like me um, who were achievers, who didn't grow up with a, a quote unquote disadvantaged background in terms of socioeconomic status. You know, both of my parents had degrees or higher, uh, lived in a very affluent uh, middle class neighborhood uh, in an affluent suburb. And it was really a shock to me at how how sheltered some of the rest of the country was um, for people like me, where in my community where I grew up, we were everywhere. And I didn't know that we weren't everywhere until I went out on my own and branched out and moved to another state and went to college. And what would you say surprised you the most? Like one of the things that always uh, gets me, and we talk about it a lot on this podcast, is there's this um, sense of wonder because I can speak correctly or because I've had certain life experiences or I come from a two-parent household. Like people seem to be shocked by that and sometimes to the point where they can't hide it. (laughs) You know what I mean? So what do you think really stood out for you the most when you started to realize these people really think that whatever the stereotype is they have in their head, that that applies to all people of color. What what stood out for you the most? What stood out for me the most was that I was treated as an exception. And I couldn't understand how anyone could think that an entire race of people wasn't capable of achieving the same level of success or the, cha- the same level of academic uh, prowess if not given the same opportunity, if they were given the same opportunities. And I, it was kind of a shock to have to represent everybody or represent the whole community. And um, it was really, really disheartening to have that kind of pressure, especially as a young person coming out into the world um, to see how, how you're being viewed as a representation of everybody Um, or as an exception to everybody. It's either one or the other. Either you're the exception or everybody is exactly like you. And having to be cognizant of that with every single interaction, every time I spoke to someone, you know, being cognizant of what kind of accent did I have when I spoke to them? Do they think I'm ghetto? Do they think I'm trying to act white? Um, You know, do they think I'm bougie? Do they think I'm not hood enough? Do they think I'm not real enough? All of those things constantly tugging at you in your brain, just on your day-to-day interactions with your peers, people who you are on the same level with and having to kind of prove your worth or prove your value and either prove your mainstreamness or prove your blackness, depending on what situation you were in at the time. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. It, it, it kind of goes both ways. Sometimes you feel like, you know, you're the representation for your entire race, which is very difficult to do or to be. And then in other situations, you know, I've had people tell me that, you know, you, you talk like a white girl, um, which always fascinates me. But OK, so I can understand what you mean, you know, depending on the situation you're in, um, it can really make it difficult. Uh, and so we graduate from USF 
and you know it's a predominantly white institution. What was it about Morehouse once you um, started applying to medical school where you knew that that's where you wanted to be? Okay, so when I started applying for medical school, I didn't have any idea of where I wanted to go. I just wanted to get in. I just wanted to pursue my dream. So I said, you know, whoever takes me, I'm just going to go. And when I started interviewing, having that PWI experience, I wasn't actually looking for um, other Black people when I went on my interviews. I just had gotten used to the fact that this is the way the world is. I'm a minority. And wherever I go, I need to be used to being in the minority. My sister works for the government and almost every single one of her functions that we would go to, she would be the only black person. So I kind of got used to, okay, this is the way the world is. Um, I didn't even know Morehouse School of Medicine existed until I started applying and researching medical schools. And I was looking at cities that I could think about living in and Atlanta seemed like a great place to, you know, to study or to live. And um, there's only a few medical schools in Atlanta. And so I just decided to apply to all of them. When I showed up for my interview at Morehouse School of Medicine, literally as soon as I stepped out of the taxi from the airport and put my feet on the campus, I just felt like I was at home. I felt like I had peace. I felt like I had found my family. Everyone from the security guards to the administrative staff to the professors, to the current students, they just felt so familiar to me. And I had another culture shock all over again because I said, oh my God, all of these people are studying medicine and they're brown. They look like me. That is absolutely incredible. And even during my interview process, as I was meeting with the different professors, I felt so relaxed. I felt like I could be myself I didn't feel like I had to uh, talk with a certain accent. Everyone saw my grades. Everyone saw my transcripts. They knew I was smart, no matter what I looked like on the outside. And I really felt like that would take a lot of the stress out of my medical education if I was in an environment where I could totally be myself and not have to worry about those other factors while I was trying to learn all this really intense information. So Morehouse felt like home the day I stepped on campus for the first time. And I felt the same from them. Like they felt that I was a fit for them as well. And as soon as I got my acceptance letter, I turned down every other program that I got accepted to because I knew Morehouse was my home. I know that it has to be a wonderful experience. It was part of the reason why going to an HBCU was so important to me to just have that experience to be around um, you know, black and brown people who look like me, who were really about getting their business done. And so I can imagine what it was like to be able to do that um, at Morehouse. Now, how did you decide what you wanted to be your specialty um, once you um, decided you were going to go to medical school? How did you determine that this is the this is what you wanted to do within the medical field? Yes. Yeah, so that's actually a more complicated question, but it has an answer. <laughs> um, actually, after when I was in college, I knew that I wanted to go to medical school. I thought that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon because the doctor who inspired me was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I ran track at University of South Florida for a little while. So to me, it just seemed like orthopedics would be a natural specialty to go into. Um, but Little known fact about me, while I was in college and studying science, I was actually terrified of blood 
<laughs> which makes no sense for somebody who wants to be a doctor. So after college, I knew that I was not ready emotionally for medical school and dealing with people in really, really horrible situations, bleeding and requiring care. So I actually went back home to D.C. and I became an emergency medical technician and firefighter for the Washington, D.C. Fire Department. So I rode the ambulances and fire trucks for a good amount of time. And I got exposed to everything you can possibly imagine. I got exposed to car accidents, gunshot, stabbing, um, people getting in accidents where their bones were broken visibly and being the one to have to respond to those incidents, the one to have to stabilize people, the one to have to stop the bleeding or put a tourniquet on. That really matured me in a quick amount of time. And I knew that if I could handle that, I could definitely handle uh, the blood and guts of medical school or being a doctor. So I took the MCAT, the medical college admissions test, uh, while I was in the fire department. And I interviewed for medical school while I was in the fire department. Um, and the fire department actually changed the, my view of what I wanted to go into because I was seeing all these tra traumatic situations. I thought that initially I wanted to go into trauma surgery. Um, just from what I saw on the streets of D.C., and that's what I was used to. I was used to being in a high-stress, high-paced environment, and I, and I excelled. I was great at it. So when I went into medical school, when I actually got into medical school, my initial focus was to be a trauma surgeon because I thought that was the natural progression from what I was doing or what the, the things that I was treating um, as an EMT and a firefighter. Um, and I actually went into general surgery um, initially after I graduated from medical school. And it was not what I expected. Um, I found that I was more of a thinker and more of an analytical doctor. Um, but I also was very good at procedures. And so anesthesiology was the natural complement to that because we still deal with trauma situations. Every situation that comes into the operating room, there is a surgeon and there's an anesthesiologist. And the anesthesiologist is the one who actually stabilizes the patient so that the surgeon can operate. It's not just putting people to sleep, but it's controlling their blood pressure. If their blood pressure is too low, bringing it up higher. If their blood pressure is too high, bringing it down lower. If the patient is bleeding uncontrollably, the anesthesiologist is the one who has to replace blood that they lose while the surgeon tries to fix the hole that they're bleeding from. Um, and so um, I switched out of general surgery, did an anesthesiology residency, and that has been one of the, the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Oh, girl, I got to unpack that. So before you went to medical school, because I saw in there, I was like, when was Vanessa a firefighter and EMT? So you did that in between um your undergrad and medical school, right? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I went from undergrad to the fire department to medical school. Yes. And so what was that like? The being what, what was it about the fire department that that was something you wanted to try? And, you know, I know you were in D.C., so there may have been more black and brown people than uh, maybe you see in other fire departments. But were there a lot of women doing that? At the time, the D.C. Fire Department did not have a lot of women, but they had enough where I was in good company. 
uh, my training class, my recruitment class for the fire academy had 32 people and I was the only female out of 32. Um, the class in front of me, I think, had 25 or 26 people and one female. Um, and then when I graduated from the fire academy, I was the only female in my firehouse. And it actually prepared me for medicine more than I thought, because medicine is still predominantly a male environment, a white male environment at that. It taught me how to navigate and how to carry myself in that environment before I even got to medical school or before I graduated from medical school. Um, one of the first lessons I learned was that no matter what you feel like you're being treated like, no matter whether you feel you're being discriminated against, no matter what is going on, you have to do your job with excellence first. If you are not doing your job with excellence, you can't complain about anything or any type of this perceived discrimination. And so I learned early on that no matter what, the first thing I do is make sure that all my ducks are in a row and that I'm doing my job with excellence to the best of my ability. And then if things are still not working out or if you still feel that things are unfair or undiscriminated against, at least you have a proven record of your ability to do your job which can counteract anyone else's argument that um, that you're not fit for the job. You know, that's just really true that you say that, because I think that um, it's a lesson we all have to learn. It's like the first thing you got to do is make sure you're doing everything you're supposed to do, because, of course, when you say, hey, this is discrimination because I'm a female or because I am a person of color, then they want to pull out your record and say, yeah, but you know, you forgot to do this or you didn't quite do that. So it eliminates that argument. Um, so I can see where, you know, just being one of a few females would uh, really help you to prepare for that. Uh, so let's fast forward. Now we have completed medical school and tell me if you've ever had any instance where, you know, I've had a few surgeries and the anesthesiologist comes in to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about what I can expect. Have you ever had somebody who could not hide their shock, whether it was excited because it was a black female or whether they were just like, it's a black woman anesthesiologist, like it was a foreign concept. Have you ever experienced it where you could tell the person you were not what they were expecting to have walk in the room? That happens a lot more frequently than you would believe. <laughs> um, the Black women are usually my biggest advocates and my biggest cheerleaders. And as soon as they see my face, they say, oh, yes, yes, Black girl power. Um, but I have had some patients who I could tell were not happy that I was going to be the one uh, taking care of them. I had one incident where a patient said, uh, our so are you the doctor? After I'd already introduced myself as the doctor, I said, yes, I'm Dr. Starks. I'll be your anesthesiologist. And she said, okay, well, is there, is, are there any other doctors? And I said, well, what do you mean? Are there any other doctors? She's like, is it, is it going to be you taking care of me? And I'm like, yes, again, I'm Dr. Starks. I'll be your anesthesiologist. Um, and you can kind of see the bewilderment and you try not to take it um, personally, and that actually serves as motivation. Okay, I know this person is not expecting me, so I'm going to do such a good job that they can never say that they don't want a Black doctor taking care of them again. And I've had those situations as well. Um, the biggest thing that happens is people forget or they ignore the fact that I'm a doctor, even after I've introduced myself as a doctor. 
especially if I have a resident or someone else working with me who is like a white male, for example, um, I'll introduce myself. I'll say, hi, I'm Dr. Starks. I'll be your anesthesiologist. This is Dr. So-and-so. This is my resident. We'll be working together. And even after that, I've had patients not acknowledge me as the doctor, but acknowledge my resident or someone underneath me as their doctor. That can be a little bit hurtful. But again, I, don't, I try not to take anything personally. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing that in 2020, this is still a problem. Um, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, talk to women that I know are in fields where it's not expected um, and just how people react when you walk in. Um, now you are in DC, which I know is a little more diverse than other places, but in the hospital, is it still, as you said earlier, very male white dominated or is it, um, is it getting better? Are you seeing more people of color or, or what is that like? How many people of color um, other doctors do you get to be interacting with and get to be with on a, on a regular basis? Yes, Washington, D.C. is a great area to be in in terms of diversity. Um, we're actually starting to have these conversations more in the hospital now because while we've done a great job of diversifying our workforce and diversifying our departments, one thing that has not yet been diversified is the leadership or the promotion of, you know, doctors of color in various departments. And so while I may work with, you know, a department that's one third minority, none of those minorities will be in leadership position in terms of, you know, hospital leadership, or none of those minorities will be promoted when it's, when it's the, no, the natural course of promotion. And so at GW, we've actually formed an anti-racism task force which includes minority doctors across different departments and some minority doctors as well, to try to tackle some of those issues uh, within our own system to make sure that we are treating all of our faculty equally in terms of leadership and promotion, and to make sure that everyone is represented on every level of the administration and every level of leadership in the hospital. I do think that that is probably where there's a breakdown in a lot of places, right? So people think they're doing a great job because they diversify the team. But when you look at who's still in the leadership roles, it's typically uh, not a lot of people of color. So it's it's nice to hear that that's something that they're recognizing and working through. Um, so now, how long have you been um, at, at the hospital where you currently are? Um, how long have you been working there? I've been at GW for just over a year now. Um, I've worked at several hospitals throughout residency and training. Um, I've worked in New York at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. I was there for two years during my general surgery training. Um, I was at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia for three years during my anesthesiology training. And then I did a year at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore um, for my fellowship training um, and then moved to GW um, in May of last year. So about a little over a year now. And I know that, uh, you know, we're just talking about your experience in general, but obviously we're talking medicine here. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what has the situation been like for you, your hospital as it relates to COVID-19? You see, I know that there are spikes everywhere, but what has it been like at your hospital? My hospital has been very fortunate in that we have very strong leadership and we have very strong mayor, the city, uh, the city mayor, Mario Bowser in Washington, D.C. Um, our 
it, you really have to put it in context of the political situation and who's actually leading the city where your hospital is. And I think that there are things that we could do better, but we've also done a lot of things really well. And one of the things that we've really taken the lead on is making sure that everyone who's coming into the hospital for care is tested for COVID. And we have an amazing laboratory, an amazing pathology department that tries to get those tests completed and resulted as quickly as possible. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it was extremely stressful. Not that it's not stressful now, but a lot of the stress and anxiety was just not knowing who had the disease and who we were exposing ourselves to as healthcare providers, not knowing how much protective equipment we needed to put on to deal with each patient. But now that we have so much testing at our hospital, we have a pretty good idea uh, of who we need to put on full PPE for and who is relatively safe. And that eases a lot of the tension and a lot of the anxiety when I'm caring for patients. If I have a very current active, you know, COVID test result, we require people to have, if they're coming in for surgery, their test result has to be, have done, been done within 48 hours. So I know that as long as this person was, you know, doing what they're supposed to do at least 48 hours ago, I can reasonably say that they did not have COVID. <laughs> so that eases a lot of my anxiety when I'm taking care of patients. We still protect ourselves no matter what, but it's just such a relief when you have a test result in front of you and you kind of know what you're dealing with. And by the same token, we know who's coming in, who's positive for COVID, and we take the necessary precautions as well. But um, there are a lot of places in the country, a lot of hospitals in the country that aren't testing every single patient that comes in the door for COVID unless they're coming in with symptoms. So I think that GW in particular has done a fantastic job of trying to make sure that we know who we're dealing with and, and their, their COVID status so that we can appropriate and allocate resources in a more efficient manner. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. As you've, If you've been paying attention, girl, we do not have it together in Florida. Um, and I do think that sometimes, um, I guess I haven't put that correlation together, who's running your city um, has a lot to do with it. Um, so it's nice to know that in other places they are kind of getting it right. Um, and so I want to pivot just a little bit and talk about, um, well, before I do that, I did want to ask, um, I thought I saw online and um, I thought my sister mentioned to me, you've done some mission trips since you uh, became a doctor. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I do a, a yearly mission trip. I participated in two different ones, but there's one that I do every year. Um, we do a lot of surgical missions. So the first one that I participated in was called Operation Walk, and that was in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. That operation was an orthopedic surgery mission where we performed free hip and knee replacements for patients that um, could otherwise not afford or not have access to the operations. That was one of the most life-changing experiences I had um, as a doctor was to see people who could not walk, who had not walked for years, and by the end of the week were up walking again. It, it actually brought tears to my eyes. Um, and sur there's no surgery without anesthesia. So all of these surgical missions have a, a, an equal complement of anesthesia providers that go with them. 
And to be a part of that process and to watch someone come in in a wheelchair and, and walk out on their own power was absolutely amazing. And then the yearly mission that I do is to Rwanda. That is also a surgery mission. This one is more specific to women. Um, there are a lot of complications that can happen as a result of childbirth in uh, underdeveloped nations or nations who aren't as medically advanced as we are. And a lot of these women um, develop abnormal um, connections between some of their internal organs. And the team that I work with is a specialty team of gynecological and urological surgeons that specialize in women's, um, women's reconstructive surgeries in terms of closing those abnormal connections. And so every year we go to Rwanda and we operate on, you know, 40, 50 patients um, to try to close up, you know, the, the abnormal connections in their bodies that shouldn't be there. And that is that is an amazing trip as well. Rwanda is an absolutely beautiful country. It's a peaceful country. And uh, that's one of the highlights of my year that I look forward to. And why was uh, that something you wanted to get involved in, you know, um, helping out and, and being a part of these missions? Why was that something you thought you wanted to do? I realized very on that I was blessed and that I had a lot to give and it's sad to say, but sometimes in the U.S., you can't practice medicine the way you want to because of insurance companies, because of paperwork, um, because people uh, are very litigious and like to sue if things go wrong or if things don't go exactly the way they plan on it. And getting involved in missions is a way to give back um, freely without having to worry about any of the other paperwork or other things that come along with trying to practice medicine in the U.S. The patients that we take care of are so grateful and they don't have access to the type of care um, that we have in the United States. So they don't take it for granted. Um, and it's a really, really awesome way to kind of reset your mind as to why you got into medicine in the first place to heal people and to see people's lives completely changed um, just by using, you know, your hands and your brain. And so it's a, it's actually very refreshing for me to go to another country and provide these services. Um, I don't have to have, we have paperwork that we fill out. Obviously we get permission from the local government. We get temporary medical licenses from whatever country that we're going to. But to be able to just practice medicine without fear and to just do what's best for the patient, no matter what, uh, no matter what the insurance company says, no matter how much the treatment costs, no matter how much the medication costs, just to be able to give what's needed and do what's right is absolutely refreshing. And it helps me reset and refocus so that I can come back to the U.S. with more passion or renewed passion for what I do. Thank you so much. I just um, really admire that. I wanted to make sure that I asked about that before I um, pivoted a little bit here. So just wanted to talk now more about what it is like as a, uh, a female doctor, woman of color, and now we're, we're dating, right? So um, do you ever find that it is sometimes intimidating for men when they find out what you do? How, how does that work? I thought that I had a sweet enough of a personality that no matter what I did, I wouldn't be intimidating, but I was rudely awakened 
<laughs> uh, by some of the experiences that I've had, I've had men tell me to my face on date one that I'm intimidating, you know, no matter how sweet, no matter how much you giggle, um, just who you are and what you do sometimes turns people off. Um, little known fact about me, I used to be engaged and one of the reasons why we didn't go forward with the wedding was because um, he determined that medical school was not going to be something that fit into our future and that I needed to be more dedicated and more focused to uh, helping with the family and raising the family. And I didn't agree. I, you know, I was really young at the time and I was like, this is my dream. How can you ask me to give up my dream before I've even started? But since then, um, I used to tell people that I did something else. I used to tell them I was just an EMT and until they got to know me and I figured, you know, once they get to know me and they see how sweet I am, then I'll tell them I'm a doctor. But I learned that I needed to stop, um, stop making excuses. And if anyone is going to deal with me and be with me, they need to know exactly who I am up front. And if they can't handle it, then I would love for them to walk out the door so that I save myself some headache. Uh, in the long run, but it is a, a deterrent factor for a lot of men. And I can't really say that it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's not everybody's fault. Men are supposed to want to be providers, at least, uh, you know, that's what I was taught. And they're supposed to want to be able to, you know, give you things that you can't necessarily provide for yourself. And sometimes they, I think they just feel lost if they, don't feel like they can bring more to the table than what you already bring to the table, which is okay. Um, but you just have to find somebody who is secure enough in who they are and what they bring to the table that everything that you bring is a compliment and not a competition. Um, so I found that the men that are the most intimidated, they view me as competition and not as a compliment or a partner. And that's where the disconnect is. And nobody wants to be in competition or feel like they're in competition. So um, I used to let it bother me. But now, as soon as I get a hint that they're uncomfortable, I just go ahead and I let them let them leave peacefully because there's no sense in fighting that. I, my job as a female is not to massage your male ego from day one. I, I thought I think I knew you were engaged. I didn't know what girl he wanted you to give up your dream before you even had a chance to start. <laughs> well, he, well, he was a preacher. Well, he was a preacher, so he had other other plans. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, he wanted still, a first lady. He wanted a first lady. That's okay. You, you could you could be a first lady and a doctor. No, you can't do I, both. I think so too, but that's okay. I was just I'm just curious. Like, does one negate the other? But we could debate that all day. I guess we'd have to ask him. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, have you found that, do, do have you typically always dated Black men? Have you dated outside of your race and you found that it doesn't really matter? It's just an issue in general? Whoa, good question. I have dated uh, outside of my race. Um, actually, I went on a two-year, like a two-year stretch where I was only dating white men, not by, uh, not on purpose. That's just who I just happened to come in contact with and who happened to be interested in me at the time. Um, since we've got so much going on in the news and in the world from a political and racial standpoint, I have not dated 
um, outside of my race um, recently, um, just because I found that a lot of people who don't see themselves as racist still have some racist biases that they're just unaware of. And those things really started to come out um, in the last, you know, year or so, last couple of months. And there's a lot of people who don't think that they're racist, but they have some attitudes and ideas that are just not okay. And for me, it's a lot less stress for me to just date somebody who gets it (laughs) without me having to explain it or having to argue against it. Um, I tell people all the time, people are always asking me, uh, you know, are you involved in all the protests? And I said, no, actually, right now, I don't have the energy to fight COVID and racism at the same time. So it's either one or the other, and I'm choosing to fight COVID. So I've actually stopped dating outside of my race for the current uh, time being. Um, But one thing that's interesting, um, the men that I've dated outside of my race, no matter what their job is, no matter what their salary was, I have never dated a white man who was intimidated by me or by my job or my success, even if he was blue collar making, you know, a fraction of my salary, which I found to be very interesting. And it was actually one of the reasons why I started dating outside of my race is because I I realized that they supported me and were proud of me um, no matter what. And they were just not intimidated by, you know, anything that I had accomplished. Um, but recently, I have I have definitely uh, scaled back on my interracial dating. And why do, why do you think that is? I was going to ask that question. If you found that it was more black men who had that issue versus white men, or if it was universal, why do you think it seems to be in your experience? Because obviously, we can't speak for all black men or all white men. But why do you think, from what you've experienced, that seems to be the case? I have a theory that I'll share in a second. But what do you <laughs> think the reason is for that? Well. I think because black men black men have such a hard struggle. They have such a hard time in society and I feel like they want to know that they have that they have support and that they have someone in their corner. But they also they also need a lot of uh a lot of validation and White men don't need that validation because they have white privilege. And so I and and anyone can can argue against this. Obviously, this is just my experience. But it really, to me, seems like uh, black men, when they're struggling so hard and trying to get ahead, if they have a black woman who they think has already made it, it just kind of stings a little bit more to them or hurts a little bit more. And that can create a lot of tension in their relationship because they do have it so much harder than everybody else. They even have it harder than black women, which, you know, a lot of us in certain areas, especially in the professional world, you know, you're more more likely to have a black woman promoted than a black male um, because black men are just seen as so threatening, you know, in those environments. That's kind of what my theory was also. I kind of felt like, Um, some of it is that white privilege applies, whether you're blue collar, whether you're white, it doesn't matter. You can be, you know, making minimum wage. You can be the, the CEO of the whatever company, 
the way a white man is treated in a lot of circles is going to be different from the black man, regardless of quote unquote status. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And so that was kind of my theory too, that that white privilege applies no matter what this white guy does. And so some of that they don't have to deal with. And so, you know, there, you know, like I I was listening to somebody today, he was uh, talking with the, he was talking about, um, you know, racism and systemic racism. He was saying that he was in the car with some friends and they were all white and the friend must've been speeding or, you know, some sort of traffic infraction. And they stopped the friend who was the one driving. He was a passenger. The only person who had to get out of the car and show ID and explain themselves was the black guy. And he wasn't even the one driving. So, you know, it's just like you said, there's just that they're, they're intimidating no matter just by them walking in the room. And so I did wonder if that, you know, that was my theory that some of that white privilege is real and it, it doesn't matter what they do. They're going to be treated a certain way because they're white. Um, And so just wanted to close with asking you what has been, and I, maybe we've talked about it a little bit, what has been the most rewarding thing uh, about being a doctor, if you had to say? The most rewarding thing about being a doctor is taking somebody through the most stressful or the most scary parts of their lives and bringing them through on the other end. Because I'm an anesthesiologist, people are really, really nervous when they come in for surgery, even if it's not a planned surgery, if it's an emergency, if it's, you know, a burst appendix or or a gunshot wound, people are scared. They're so scared when they come to me. And the things that are happening to their body are the worst things that will probably happen in their life. And to be able to take them safely through those things um, is such a reward and is so amazing because you can see, you know, the results and literally giving people another chance at life or a chance to have a different life than the one that they had before or the chance to continue the life that they had already known and already been used to is extremely uh, rewarding for me. So I love taking patients through surgery safely. Patients who aren't expected to make it, seeing them on the other side, make it. And even being with patients and families in their time of loss and being able to comfort them, being able to talk to them about what they're feeling and explain things that are going on, that has been rewarding as well. A lot of times patients don't get a a good explanation of what's happening medically. And one of the things I try to do is to really break everything down and so that they understand what's happening in their body and they understand the treatments that are being provided to them. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of someone understanding what's happening with their body and understanding what's being done to help them. And that increases their awareness, increases their involvement in their care, it increases their spirits, increases their ability to recover. And it also uh, helps them to have more faith in medicine and faith in the, in the system. So I love being able to be there for patients and take them through these really, really difficult times and be that calm, calm in the midst of the storm for them. Thank you so much for that. I think that's a great way to end. Uh, Vanessa, I really appreciate you for your time, for just kind of giving a a peek into what it's like to be um, a Black female anesthesiologist. Um, It was so good to talk to you. And if there's anything that you want to hear us talk about here on In My Shoes, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that is kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Looking forward to the next time we can spend together. And until then, be blessed.